couple of announcements. First of all, we have the deadline for the shoebox ministry uh, stuff out there is this Sunday, so you need to look at that and take care of that if you're participating in that ministry. Second, um, second, we have uh, to pray for Jeff Phipps and his uh, trip to Brazil, November 23rd uh, through December the 3rd, and pray for him and the groups that he'll be working with down there. You can also remember in the next, I think, five day, four or five days, Jim Myers is teaching like ten times, so you can uh, remember to pray for him uh, during the next few days. And then um, I think, I'm trying to think, have we, we set a date for the uh, church uh, Christmas dinner? Is that the second Sunday in, um, in December? Is that the ninth? Okay. Hmm. That's right. December ninth, we'll have our uh, annual church Christmas dinner. So be thinking about that. How shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word? Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can each prepare ourselves spiritually to study the Word and to worship the Lord as we study the Word. And then after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful we had this time to come before your throne of grace and especially remember some of these circumstances that uh, involve ministry today for Jim Myers over the next four or five days as he's teaching and others and a couple of different conferences there in, in, um, in Kiev and in Ukraine. Father, we also pray for uh, Ralph LaRosa. Uh, during this week, he's been uh, with a group training them in Islamic evangelism Pray that they would be uh, uh, able to use that which they have learned. Father, we pray for our nation. We pray for our leaders. We pray for that, that the forces of evil would be restrained and that those who are elected would continue to stand firm for the Constitution. And Father, we pray this because as a church, we need not be distracted by political threats of the loss of freedom and liberty, and that we might continue to freely uh, proclaim the gospel without hindrances imposed by uh, the judiciary or legislation. Father, we pray for our national security, that you would give our president wisdom in the way he handles the situation with the caravan, and we pray that However the election turns out on Tuesday, that we can recognize that all things have been put into your hands and that you are still controlling history. Father, we pray, too, for us as a church and as a congregation. We pray for our financial needs, and we know and trust that you will provide for us and take care of that as you have provided for us so faithfully over the years. And, Father, we pray that we might continue to have a strong desire to know you through your word, to know your word, and to apply it to our lives. And Father, we just pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to First Peter chapter 5. First Peter chapter 5. And we're going to come down to the motivation that is uh, explained by Peter here in the first Uh, in this first part of chapter 5, as we have been studying for some time in the first three verses, his command to the elders, that is the spiritual leaders in the congregation, the pastors who are shepherding the congregation, that they are to uh, shepherd the congregation willingly, not under compulsion, but they are to do so knowing that 
uh, they will receive the crown of glory that will not fade away. And so tonight we're going to look at this passage and we're going to focus on this fourth verse that gives us part of the motivation, long-term motivation to serve the Lord, is that there's nothing wrong with motivation. God uh, motivates us both negatively through uh, punishment or discipline, and he motivates us positively through uh, through rewards, through promises of of special eternal uh, blessings that will be ours if we are uh, faithful in our service to him. This is like the incentive clause in a contract. You know what your basic salary is going to be, but if you do well, then there are various levels of incentives that will come your way if you uh, if you perform well. So we will all have resurrection bodies. We will all spend. We will all have eternal life. We will all spend eternity with the Lord in the new heavens and the new earth. But there will be some distinctions based upon uh, service in this life. And so, as we come to uh, uh, the last verse in this opening paragraph, Peter says, "And when the chief shepherd appears." You will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. So we need to think about this. There's a lot here that is brought into focus in this one verse. And it comes to the end. It's the motivation that he talks about for those who are shepherding the flock. It's not negatively. It's not by compulsion. Verse 2 but positively, it's willingly. There are three pairs there of antonyms, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but by being examples to the flock. And I covered those last time. And then the long-term motivation, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. The focus here where he's going in the next few verses is on the importance of humility and servant leadership. That servant leadership is based on humility, but humility is based on obedience to God, submission to God. It's not being walked on or rolled over or always giving in to what people want. A good leader is obedient to the word and stands firm. Uh, but he does it in a way that is kind and uh, caring for people. You see this with Jesus. The only people Jesus really got after were the unbelievers who were resisting him, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious uh, crowd. And so when this congregation or this the recipients of this, not a congregation, but the recipients of this epistle were faced with impending persecution and suffering, the leadership needed to be mature and they need to be solid and they need to stand firm and have the long-term goal in mind because things were going to get tough. And there's an application there for us. We don't know what the future will hold, but the trajectory in this country for the last 75 years has been in the wrong direction. And no matter how many uh, somewhat positive elections there have been and the choice of some better leaders at times the general down the general trajectory is downward and it is away from the absolutes of the constitution and i don't see anything apart from an intervention from from god in terms of a what i would call a genuine biblical uh, revival something like what happened in nineveh unless we have something on that order that it's going to reverse itself. So the main thing that we need to do is to prepare ourselves spiritually to be able to face whatever comes so that we can have the same sort of joy and happiness and stability about whatever takes place that our Lord had as he went to the cross. So that is key to developing leadership, and so we have to have... Uh, a a long-term focus. We have to be able to live today 
uh, in light of eternity, understanding what the Lord is doing in preparing us, and that is always related to the whole issue of crowns and rewards. And so there's some great things to understand in this passage. So Peter begins and he says, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. So there's an order of events here. That is, first of all, there's the appearance of the chief shepherd. And following the appearance of the chief shepherd, there is the reception of rewards. That tells us that this is not something that occurs at the second coming. The appearance of the chief shepherd here is not talking about the appearance when Jesus returns to establish his kingdom on the earth at the second coming, but this is talking about when he comes in the clouds, according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, that when he comes in the clouds and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds, and thus we shall ever be with the Lord. It's immediately following that, that there is the judgment seat of Christ and the rewards for uh, the faithful believers who have served the Lord in this life. The first word that we should be aware of here in, in 5.4 is this word phanerao, and it refers to, well, it's a temporal participle, which is why you have it translated as when uh, the chief shepherd appears. It's It's just has to do with a manifestation or appearance or sometimes even a revelation of something, but it is not a technical term for the rapture or for the second coming. It is used to describe both events. Now, here we have a timeline chart I've used before to put in place the judgments and the resurrections that come at the end of history. And so it gives us this timeline. So after the cross, you have the ascension of Christ 40 days after the resurrection, or after, yeah, after the resurrection, or after the crucifixion, and then 50 days, 10 days later, is when the Holy Spirit descends and you have the church age. That's indicated by this uh, first green section of the timeline. The church age ends when the Jesus comes in the air and we are raptured to be with the Lord, and it's at this time that that judgment seat takes place. We refer to it as the Bema seat because that is the uh, Greek word that is used for a raised platform, and so a judge uh, at the tribunal would be seated on a raised platform. It's just a generic word for any sort of raised platform. I'll show you some pictures a little later on of the Bema at, at the uh, Olympic Games in, in, uh, in Greece. But in a synagogue, at the front of the synagogue, there was a raised platform on which the, uh, they would place the ark. And the ark is where they kept copies of the Ten Commandments. It wasn't the Ark of the Covenant. But this is referred to as the Bema. And so this was also on the Bema was where they had uh, one uh, pulpit or speaking area, which is where uh, they would speak from on the basis of their rabbinical tradition and other things. And then there was another seat up there that was called the Seat of Moses. And I've seen that in some of the uh, archaeological discoveries in Israel. And, and they would take their seat, everybody would stand up, and, and the uh, rabbi would take his seat and sit and teach the Torah. And, and Jesus in Matthew uh, 23 talks about when the, the Pharisees, that when they're in the Seat of Moses... When they're telling you what the law means and how to apply it, that is when you obey them. You obey the word. But when they're not and they're teaching their traditions and they're not in the seat of Moses, then that's don't. Then Jesus said, "Don't obey them at that point because they're uh, because they're wrong." But that platform at the front of a synagogue is called the bema. 
So it's just a generic term, but it re- also refers to that place where a, tri- uh, a tribune would sit and a tribunal would be conducted uh, in judgment. So after the tribulation, I mean after the rapture, some time after the rapture, not immediately, the tribulation isn't triggered by the rapture. The tribulation is triggered uh, by the signing of the covenant between the Antichrist and Israel. And that's described in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. There's a period of time between the rapture and the beginning of the tribulation. We don't know if it's a few weeks. We don't know if it's a few months. Uh, We have no idea, but there's this transition. Remember, Jesus is the end of the law at the cross. But the church doesn't begin for 50 days. So there's a 50-day transition period that's not the church age, and it's not the age of the law. And so you have these transition periods between dispensations in the past, and so there will be some kind of transition period uh, between the uh, end of the church age with the rapture and the beginning of the tribulation. Tribulation will end when Jesus returns to the earth riding a white horse. Now, it's not silver. He'll have his own white horse. We don't know what he's called. But he will be riding a white horse, and he will return to the earth. That is the second coming. Now, there are various judgments that take, uh, there, there, there several resurrections that takes place, excuse me, there's the first resurrection, which is Christ, the first fruits. Then there is the rapture, which is the resurrection of the church. Then there is the resurrection of the two witnesses halfway through the tribulation period. And then at the end of the tribulation period, there is a, a uh, resurrection of Old Testament saints and tribulation saints. That's all referred to in Scripture as the first resurrection. The second resurrection is of unbelievers for the great white throne judgment. So you have various judgments that take place at that time. There's the sheep and the goat judgment, and that is the, uh, the judgment of the Gentiles and how the surviving Gentiles and how they treated the Jews during the tribulation period. There's the judgment of the Antichrist and the false prophet. Uh, these surviving Gentiles are judged at the judge, at the uh, uh, sheep and the goat judgment. Surviving Jews are also judged at that uh, at that time, and then Old Testament saints will be evaluated at that time. And tribulation saints, those th- that's those who were resurrected at the end of the uh, tribulation period. They're all judged at that time. Then there's the one thousand year reign of Christ in the kingdom. And then this ends with the second resurrection of the unsaved, and they are judged at the great white throne judgment. And uh, at this time, uh, Satan is also cast into the lake of fire. So that's just an overview timeline so that you've, you've got that. When the chief shepherd appears, this is at the rapture, you will receive the crown of joy. Now, this is an an unusual word for receive. It's not your main word that you would expect here. And it has the idea in a number of passages of receiving remuneration or recompense for something that you have done. And so that fits with the context of receiving a reward. And the reward that is mentioned here is the crown of glory. Now, the Greek word here for crown is the word uh, stephanos. And a stephanos is a crown or a wreath that was given to the victor in the games. It was awarded to a general or a commander for a military victory. There were various times when this crown is given, but it is not the crown of royalty. The crown of royalty is described by the Greek word diademos. And so when we sing all hail the power, we sing the diadem version. And that is uh, just, there's, there's three different tunes that are used. That's the diadem version. Then there's the coronation version. And then there is the, um, I think it's the miles something or other. 
version. So those are the, tr- the, the, the three tunes. So but that's where we, you, you're familiar with those words. And so it's, it's interesting that, that the crown that we are getting is a Stephanos crown. Now, that's important because it's key to understanding what the Scriptures teach about rewards and judgments. So when we look at this passage... It tells us that the chief shepherd is going to appear, and this is a title for Jesus that is not used a lot, and so it's important to kind of understand where this derives. It comes from the Old Testament. So I want you to turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 34. The reason we're doing this is because it's a long chapter and a long passage, and it's not one I want to put a bunch of slides up there. So we'll start with Ezekiel 34:11, and this will take us down to the end of the chapter. But this is talking about Yahweh as the chief, as the true shepherd. Now, I want you to notice something in verse 11. It begins, for thus says the Lord God. And this is, uh, he is the one who is speaking. Now that's critical. There's some interesting things that go on in this, in this particular uh, section. For thus, thus says the Lord God. Now you'll notice, if you look at the screen, that Lord is lowercase, capital L, but lowercase O-R-D. God is uppercase G, and then it is a, uh, uh, smaller uppercase uh, O and D. Now, translators of the English Bible, since at least the King James Bible, I don't know if they did it earlier in the Geneva Bible or some of the other translations, but when the name Yahweh is translated into English in order to distinguish that from Elohim and Adonai, it is always translated in capital letters. So here you have, we're familiar with Lord and seeing that in all caps. But here we have God in, in uppercase. And so when we look at this, it, it tells us that Lord here is the Hebrew word Adonai, uh, which is a word for Lord. So that must be translated as Lord. If it was uh, Yahweh Elohim, then it would be Lord God, and Lord would be in uppercase, and God would be in, in, in lowercase. So this tells us that it's Adonai, um, Adonai Yahweh here, and it tells us that God is the one who's speaking. So he is making a bold statement about what he is going to do. He says, uh, indeed, I myself, there's emphasis there. He's using the reflexive, I myself, I will do this. It emphasizes the nature of the certainty of what he is saying here. I will search for my sheep and seek them out. Now, if you're Jewish and you're reading Ezekiel, you would know that he's talking about the, the Jewish people, he's talking about the Israelites, that he is going to seek them out. And what we find here is that this is a another of many, many promises in the prophets that of a restoration of the Jewish people uh, to their uh, historic homeland that will take place sometime in the future. God is going to recover them from being scattered uh, throughout the world in all of the various countries in the, in the world. Now, the initial diaspora began in 586 B.C. Actually, it began with the first deportation in 605, but the temple then is, is destroyed in 586, and there was a deportation in 605, another deportation in 597, and then the final one in 685, and this is when the Israelites were scattered. There is a partial restoration that occurs in 538 with Cyrus. And Cyrus is the, gives uh, um, uh, Zedekiah uh, a, a writ to go back to the land, and he and Zerubbabel uh, go back to the land and, and reestablish uh, a small group. And this is before Nehemiah and before Ezra, and they only go back with about 47,000. 
Now, that's pretty small. And there are several more groups that come back over the years, one, one several years later with Ezra and Nehemiah, and, and total of, of those over a period of 100 years, you've probably had fewer than 100,000 Jews return from the Babylonian captivity. And that's not a very large number of people. There were more that returned as, as, the, uh, as, the, uh, as they got more stabilized there, but it still wasn't a lot. Even, and recently I saw numbers on this that at the time of Jesus, I've always suspected this, but I saw it in print, which, of course, that must mean it's right, um, is that only about 25% of the Jews at the time of Christ were back in the land. Now, we have almost 50%. I think somebody told me recently that they had crossed that 50% line, but I'm not positive on that. But they're very, very close. Last time I checked, it was about 48.5% of, of Jews in the world were back in Israel. That's remarkable. There's never been that, that high a percentage of Jews back in the land. That is prophetically significant. Notice I didn't say it's a fulfillment of prophecy. I think it's prophetically significant, and it's increasing uh, all of the time. So this is one of those many passages where God is promising that he is going to uh, act like a shepherd. He is picturing himself here as the shepherd and that Israel is the sheep of his flock, and he will search for his sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock on the day he is among his scattered sheep, so will I seek out my sheep and deliver them from all the places where they were scattered on a cloudy and dark day. Now, this is, this is interesting. In Isaiah 11, 11, Isaiah says that there's only two restorations from all the world. Well, obviously, as I just stated, the, the return at, 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 in 538 and the return after the Babylonian captivity was not from everywhere, and it was not all of them. It was very small. It can't be one of those two restorations because in Isaiah 11, 11, uh, Isaiah says, when I restore you a second time, now that's this restoration that's being talked about here. That's the restoration that occurs at the end of the tribulation period. So if that restoration is the second restoration from all the nations of the earth, when's the first restoration from all the nations of the earth? Well, I believe that's what's happening right now in the return from the diaspora. Since we had the first Aliyah in the uh, 1880s all the way up through now, you have a historic movement of Jews back to the land. I think this is the first worldwide restoration that is taking place. But the point here that, that we're getting at is that this chapter establishes the, the fact that God is a shepherd to his people. God is pictured as a shepherd. And this goes down uh, all the way through uh, about verse... verse um, did I lose my place? Yes, I did. This goes all the way down towards the end until we get down to uh, about verses 31 or so. And um, not 31... Uh, but you see this section down here in where he begins to talk about a judgment. And he, this is the judgment uh, dealing with the sheep and the goat judgment that takes place at the end of the tribulation period that is referred to in uh, Matthew chapter 25, uh, verses uh, 40 and following. But in verse 22, look, look at what I have there. Verse 22, remember God is speaking, and he is the shepherd. He says, therefore I will save my flock, and they shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep. Notice he says they'll no longer be a prey. That can't be fulfilled any time now because they're still a prey. The rise of anti-Semitism is um, is just re remarkable. If you get a chance, 
uh, if you're on Facebook and you get a chance, go to my Facebook page. And I posted a video of uh, Dr. Michael Rydelnik speaking at a um, at the Museum of the Bible last Friday on anti-Semitism. And he does an outstanding job of talking about the difference between the old anti-Semitism and the new anti-Semitism. And answering the question, is anti-Zionism anti-Semitism? And it's, it's about an hour long, but it is just outstanding. He did a very, very good job. So uh, I'd encourage you to uh, look at that. It was posted and live streamed on their Museum of the Bible Facebook page, and I was able to share it there. And uh, we're working at getting it ripped, but I, we'd have to get permission to send it out. So it's not anywhere else where you can get a link to it. But that, 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 that's what is happening. We have all this anti-Semitism, and it's increasing in the U.S. And last Saturday, we had the, the worst mass murder of Jews in this country ever when 11 Jews were slaughtered by this anti-Semitic psycho last Saturday morning and all of his rants on Facebook and and everything like that. So anti-Semitism is increasing. So this can't be fulfilled yet. But then in verse 23, God says that when this time comes that he saves his flock, and he judges, he will establish over them a shepherd. Now, he's already identified himself as a shepherd, so this has to be an under-shepherd. I will establish one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, and then he identifies him as my servant David. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them, I, the Lord, have spoken. Now, there's a certain number of, I think there were some older dispensationalists and a certain number of people who've tried to identify this this shepherd as the Lord Jesus Christ. The analogy to the Lord Jesus Christ is the first part. When God says, I will gather them as a sheep, as a shepherd gathers his sheep, God is the one who is the true shepherd in this passage, and this is the under shepherd who is who is David, but there are some that say no. This the the under shepherd is Jesus, but if we believe in literal interpretation, then David must mean David. David wouldn't be wouldn't be the servant of God. David would not be the Messiah. David would not be another figure. It would be the resurrected David, who will be put in a position of authority to rule over Israel in in the coming kingdom. It was interesting because I was looking at some other things and I just happened to see this in the Bible knowledge commentary. The Ezekiel commentary is going to be pretty pretty good. Charles Dyer wrote that and Charlie was a classmate of mine uh, and he went on, got his doctorate. I think he was uh, uh, taught theology at Moody for a number of years and has had a very, very good faithful ministry over the years. And he makes the same statement there that this is David that uh, Ezekiel indicates this several places and that uh, he is going to be the one who will offer sin offerings for himself uh, during the millennial kingdom. And and those are not, uh, I'm not even going to get into that, but he, he mentions that. So this is not the Lord Jesus Christ. This is going to be David. And um, he's, a, he's a faithful shepherd in contrast to, the false shepherds in this area. So this is the background is into understanding uh, what Jesus is going to say in the New Testament in John chapter 10. Ezekiel 34, 11, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock. So Yahweh is the great shepherd, the true shepherd. Now Jesus comes along in John 10, 11, and 14, and he says, I am the good shepherd. This is one of those eight I am statements of Jesus in, in the gospel uh, of John. I am in the, in the Greek was ego me and is the meaning of Yahweh. Uh, I am. And we studied that recently in, in Exodus. So this was understood when Jesus answered by saying, um, 
calling himself I am, uh, he is indicating that he is deity. So he says I am, which has that nuance to it, indicating that he's God. I am the good shepherd. So the fact that he's calling himself the good shepherd, he's making a an overt claim to deity that he is the God of Ezekiel chapter 34. And so this is a strong statement of Christ's deity. He is the good shepherd. Then the next time we have Jesus, he's referred to as a shepherd only about three or four times in the New Testament. In Hebrews 13.20, we have the closing benediction of, of Hebrews. And the writer of Hebrews says, Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great, or in, that, in the term there, megas in the Greek can be translated magnificent or powerful. And I, I like the term magnificent, that magnificent shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant. So here uh, Jesus is referred to as the shepherd of the sheep. Another way in which we would also understand this is when Jesus is talking to Peter uh, in John 21, and he says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, you know, Lord, I do. Then Jesus says, feed my sheep. So there, too, he's take, putting himself in the role of the shepherd. So these passages all reference Jesus as, as the true shepherd. And in First Peter, he's going to talk about the fact that we, as, as pastors, those who serve him faithfully, are, will share in that glory because we will receive the crown of glory. So we'll go back to our passage in 1 Peter chapter 5, uh, verse 1, that, uh, I mean 5, verse 4. When the chief shepherd appears at the rapture, you will receive at the judgment seat of Christ the crown of glory that will not fade away. It is imperishable. And we are reminded that in 1 Peter 1.4, Peter said that we have an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for us. So this is one of those rewards for those who have served the Lord uh, faithfully in leading the congregation. Now, this term that is used of the crown, this term Stephanos, is very interesting. It is used a couple of different ways. Now, Stephanos referred to a crown that was made of something perishable. It was sometimes made of oak leaves, sometimes of laurel leaves, sometimes of branches from a tree, but it is the word that it describes the crown of thorns that was placed on Jesus' head. That's the only time the word is used in the Gospels. And in Matthew twenty-seven twenty-nine, and Mark fifteen seventeen, and John nineteen two and five, it refers to that crown. In contrast, we have a second word that is used in uh, the New Testament for a crown, and that is the word diadema. And diadema refers to a ruler, ruler's crown. Now, that's important to make that distinction because we see these words used in Revelation, uh, and it's significant to understand when they are used and why they are, why they are used. In Revelation 19.12, we read of a description of the Lord Jesus Christ coming back at the second coming. And this is how he is pictured. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many diadems. Not Stephanos, many diadems. Now what's interesting is this is the first time Jesus is said to wear a ruler's crown. Now, why is that important? Now, you have heard me say this many, many times, that Jesus is not now king. 
You hear so many people, and in so many contemporary courses today, they talk about Jesus as being king and that we're, you know, somehow something related to the kingdom. But a king wears a diadem. Jesus doesn't get the diadem until he returns at the second coming. Daniel 7 portrays uh, Jesus as the Son of Man sitting and waiting. He's seated now at the right hand of the Father. But then at some point in the future, he is going to arise and the Father will give him the kingdom and then he will come to the earth. Jesus is not pictured with a diadem until he comes to the earth to establish his kingdom. That means he's not king. It's like David. David in the wilderness. David has been anointed by Samuel to be the king of Israel, but he isn't called the king or treated as the king or given kingly uh, kingly responsibilities until Saul dies and he becomes the king. That's the analogy. We are in that kind of an interim period now where the Lord is seated at the, with the fathers, at the Father's right hand and gathering his mighty men, as it were, as David gathered his mighty men, those who would be the future, uh, his future administrators and military men and mighty men in the kingdom. And so that's, that's the analogy for us. So Jesus doesn't get a kingly crown until the second coming, that which just confirms what I've been saying for years is Jesus isn't king yet. Don't talk about him as king. He will be king. Now, when we sing certain hymns like All Hail the Power or Crown Him with Many Crowns, you have to read the, 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 the language of the, the, the words there, and they are picturing a future time. They are putting us as singers at that future time when Jesus is returning to be crowned and to establish his kingdom. Uh, so they're not talking about something that is happening now, but they're, they clearly are referencing a, a future situation. The term Stephanos is also used in Scripture for athletic rewards. 1 Corinthians 9.25 says, Everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a Stephanos, a perishable crown. But we, for an imperishable crown, still Stephanos, it's a reward uh, for service. Now when we look in in Revelation into the future, it's interesting that the word Stephanos continues to show up a lot. In Revelation 4.4, Uh, Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. Now, there's a lot of people who think that this represents the, um, uh, this represents Old Testament saints. There's other people who think that this represents uh, angelic leaders, but they're Stephanos crowns. They have been rewarded, and for other reasons that come up in Revelation chapter 5 when those who are crowned are praising the Lion of Judah because you have redeemed us. Angels are not redeemed. So it cannot be angels. And I go into the details. That's a lot of uh, technical uh, stuff with textual criticism and and the Greek there, but it's really very, very, very clear. And you can look at that in the uh, series I did in Revelation to understand that. So these 24 elders are representatives of the church. They are church age saints, resurrected, raptured, and rewarded with the Stephanos uh, crowns. Uh, Revelation 4.10, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne, that's always God the Father in Revelation, and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne. Now, Jesus isn't on the scene yet. You get into chapter 5, and uh, the, the Father has a scroll, and he's looking for someone worthy enough to open the scroll, and everybody starts hunting high and low to find somebody worthy to... Uh, open the scroll, and it's the Lamb of God that comes out, 
who is uh, also the Lion of Judah, he's the one who comes out and is worthy to open the scroll. So the second person of the Trinity isn't on the scene yet in chapter 4. This has to be the, the Father. And so they cast their crowns. They have been rewarded. So uh, that is important to understand. Also, we see that that the crowns, the word Stephanos used to describe specific rewards. We'll talk about these more fully in a minute. Second uh, Timothy 4.8 talks about the crown of righteousness. James 1.12 talks about the crown of life. First uh, Peter 5.4 talks about the crown of glory. These are just different classifications of rewards. Uh, the highest rewards, I believe. There are other rewards that are also listed in the uh, at the end of each of the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. So that's just a summary of the importance of that word Stephanos. So now we'll look at a little more detail about what the Bible teaches about crowns and rewards. A key thing to remember is from Colossians 3.24. Paul writes, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Rewards are from service. So we have to understand that they're different from salvation, that this is not for everybody. There's controversy about this because there's a certain number of believers who think that this just isn't fair for uh, some people to get rewards and others not to get rewards, that there'll be some sort of inequality of the judgment seat of Christ. Well, there is equality of opportunity in this life, and those who take advantage of the opportunity will have rewards and those who don't. It's like the free market system. Those who have opportunity and take advantage of it will do well, but those who don't and who do not work hard and are lazy or just make bad decisions, then they won't do well. God is not a socialist. He's not going to give everybody equal rewards for everything. Okay, so that's basically what that other view does is turn God into a socialist. I know I'm going to get in trouble for that, but God's not a socialist. So, as I said earlier, Stephanos is the, on the first point, Stephanos is the victor's crown, a crown given as an award for successful achievement for victory in the Olympic Games, bravery in combat, or a place of honor at, at a feast. It's given for achievement or merit. It's not just given out to everybody. It's only those who excel, those who have done well. So this is a term that is used, and of course the crown of thorns for Jesus' head was done uh, to, to ridicule him and to make fun of him because he said he was the king of the Jews. The term Stephanos is used some other times in Revelation other than the crowns of those saints rewarded in heaven. It is used regarding the rider of the first horse, sat on it, and he had a crown. A crown was given to him. Now, this isn't Christ. This is, uh, this is the Antichrist because he's going out to conquer at the beginning of the tribulation. He has a Stephanos crown. Why? Because he has conquered. He has achieved this particular position, and he's not yet ruling. How do I know that? Because when we get down to um, Revelation, well, that's not the passage. Uh, later on in Revelation, I didn't put the verse in here, but when we get down later on in Revelation, the, 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 the woman who represents the kingdoms of, of the Antichrist, I mean, it's not the woman, the dragon, represents the kingdoms of the Antichrist, that she's wearing ten diademas for the ten kings, the ten nations that make up the ten-nation confederacy. And so the Antichrist is the one who's going to rule over that. So at some point he has the ruling diadem, but he doesn't have it at the beginning of the tribulation. He's going out to conquer, and so he has a different kind of crown, one that he has... Uh, earned by whatever his achievements were. 
There's uh, uh, Stephanos crowns on the demonic forces that come forth uh, out of the abyss in Revelation 9-7. And then Revelation 12-1, it's um, uh, pictured as a garland uh, of 12 stars around the woman. The woman there represents Israel. This is all goes back to the uh, dreams that Joseph had back in Genesis. And so that, that again, is, is not talking about a ruling uh, type of crown. The second word, which we've, I've already introduced, diadema, is a royal crown, a crown used for the king. It's never used for rewards for the believer. What's interesting is that diademas is not used until you get to Revelation. It's not used in any way related to the crowns of, of believers earlier. And so it shows up in Revelation. Revelation 12.3, here's where I have it listed. Uh, another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. Those are the, the seven kings. And in Revelation 13.1, he stood on the sand of the seashore. That's John. I saw a beast coming up out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were the ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. So that refers to those kingly powers put in place by Satan during the tribulation period. Now, what we're going to see here that's important is that Jesus doesn't get that diademos crown. It's not mentioned in reference to Jesus, as I pointed out a minute ago, until Revelation 19. And that just establishes the fact that he is not the, exercising a kingly position until he comes to restore that kingdom. Now the term in the third point, and I'll just skip by it because it's a lot of this, this is just illustrative from the culture. Uh, the Romans had a lot of different crowns. This was how they would, you know, today we get military, uh, those who serve in the military and have certain achievements or medals of valor will be given a medal and also a ribbon to wear on their uniform. What they received in the ancient world was a Stephanos crown for different types of achievements. So the first is the Corona Obsidianalis, which was a wreath woven from grass. Really what I'm pointing out here is most of these are composed of something that is perishable. Uh, it was woven from grass. It was given to a general who broke a siege and won a military victory. The Corona Myrtia or Ovalis is a crown made of bay leaves. This was given to a general who had a lesser triumph. The Corona Civica is made of golden oak leaves for a soldier who saved the life of another. The Corona Nivalis was the highest decoration in the Roman Navy for destroying an enemy fleet. No, I, I couldn't find information on what it was made out of. The Corona Valeris was made of gold and awarded to, for the first soldier to reach the enemy lines in battle. That's just an example here. So if you're a, in the Greco-Roman culture and you hear the word Stephanos, what's coming to your mind is some sort of award for valor, for conquest, for achievement, for victory. That's the idea. In athletic contests, each crown included a monetary reward, a huge monetary reward. Plus, they didn't have to pay taxes anymore, so they got a tax-free existence. Their children are educated at public expense. I guess they didn't heard, hear about just being an illegal, uh, undocumented alien, and then you wouldn't have to uh, uh, pay for education. Uh, a statue of the person erected in, it was erected in the public square to honor them. And so the crown is therefore used by analogy to emphasize the greatest honors that God can give to believers. This is the highest rewards. Fifth point is to understand the nature of crowns. We have to understand the cultural imagery of the games. We have the Olympic Games which are named for the ancient Olympic Games. And uh, it's interesting, I saw a documentary on the uh, Olympic, modern Olympic Games and their origin, or I think it was a, was a film, 
but it was accurate, is that when they first started, and I think there was a contest, I can't remember the Ivy League school, it was maybe uh, Princeton and Yale, but when they first started, it was from the classics department, because these are the guys who are reading all about what the ancient Greeks did, and so they're going to do it just like the ancient Greeks did. And so they all, they challenged uh, Yale to a contest, and they go show up, and they all come trotting out on the field butt naked because that's how they did it in the ancient world. And it was, you know, quite the calamity for everyone. Um, but that's the, uh, that, that, that is the military metaphor. So Paul uses these military metaphors and athletic metaphors a lot. Second uh, Timothy 2.4, no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life. That's a military metaphor. So that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, in verse 5, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. And so this lays out the, the basis uh, for this, that you compete according to the rules, and that's going to be crucial for understanding how Paul uh, Paul develops all of this, and that's the background. So you're competing. We're competing for a prize, not against each other, but to serve the Lord against a, a, a standard. It's like when you play. Uh, some sort of game where you're just trying to achieve the highest points and do better the next time. Uh, that's that's how we're competing. Under point six, the games were all well known in the ancient world and developed in Greece during the sixth century BC. And in the first century, they were still going on. You had Olympic games in Olymp that were held in Olympia. The Isthmian Games were held at the Isthmus of Corinth. I'll show you a map in just a minute and show you what an Isthmus is. It was right there at Corinth. Paul was there for a year and a half. While Paul was there, they would have held the Isthmian Games. It is very possible that Paul, who was engaged in his tent-making work, would have been making these enormous tents to house the crowds during that time, and so he would have been caught up in, in all of the excitement related to the games. And so it, just like the Super Bowl or the World Series or the World Cup, he was uh, right in the heart of the action. And so he's using this metaphor in, in, in the first epistle to the Corinthians because it relates to their culture. You had the Pythian games that were held at Delphi and the Nemean games at Argos. Now, in this map, you can see the Pel- this is the Peloponnesian Peninsula down here. So that's Peloponnese. You hear, heard of the Peloponnesian Wars. Uh, one of the major uh, cities down here is, is um, uh, Sparta, and they were fighting the Achaeans, who are on the north side of the Gulf of Corinth here and the Saronic Gulf that's located here. And so they were they were fighting... Uh, with the other Greeks. This narrow strip of land, and it looks wider there. I, I, I've gone across it on the, uh, on the highway, and you can, you can see the water on both sides. It's not like 10 miles across. It's like maybe no more than, not even a mile somewhere, I would say, somewhere between a half a mile or a mile. But you, got, you have the water, and today they've cut a, cut a canal through it. And so you have ships that, that go through, so you have the bridge over the, over the canal. On the north side in Achaia, you had the location of Delphi. This is where they uh, also had the, the worship of the Oracle of Delphi and uh, everything that was involved there. It was a major center for athletic contests and for, uh, for Olympic Games. You had... Uh, down here at Isthmia, which is right near the Isthmus, this is where they had the Isthmian Games, and also not very far from Corinth in Nemea, they had uh, also contests there. And then Olympia was over on the west side of the Peloponnesian uh, Peninsula. But this gives you an idea of where these games were. Now, here is a picture of the uh, looking out on the Gulf of Corinth. So you can see over to the right, this is the Isthmus, and what is on the opposite side over about where this arrow is, 
that is where Delphi is located. So this picture is being taken uh, from near Corinth. So that just gives you a little idea of the uh, spatial relationships there. And then in this picture, you can see uh, the Saronic Gulf and the Gulf of Corinth, and you can get a better idea here of how wide uh, that isthmus is. It's, it's not that wide. Now, archaeologists have discovered where they had the games and where the stadiums were located. And here's a picture of the starting line for the races at Isthmia. Uh, they, it's not nearly as dramatic as what you have in this picture, which is the, the, uh, the, the stadium at Delphi. And this is where they had the races, and you can't really see it well in the picture, but you can see that there's something a little odd or a little different here in the stands. Uh, if I didn't tell you that, you probably wouldn't, wouldn't uh, notice it so much. But this is where the judges sat, and that's what it looked like. That's the bema. Okay, it was the elevated seats where the where the judges would sit to judge the athletic contest. So when Paul is writing about all these athletic things going on, he's he he it's just like somebody today would be using Super Bowl or uh World Series or something like that to communicate it. These were the starting blocks for the races for the uh uh there in in uh, Delphi and then this is looking down to uh, what they've uncovered. This is all the uh, places where the athletes trained and where they slept and where they lived uh, during the time that they were training. This is a background for understanding 1 Corinthians nine twenty four and 25. Do you not know that those who run in the race all run, but only one receives the prize? Now, he's not saying only one believer is going to win the prize. He's talking about in a race. In a race, only one receives the prize. So the one who gets the prize is the one who works the hardest, who is more disciplined and is going to uh, carry, out, uh, carry out the game, uh, carry out the race and win the race. Now, in the ancient world, only freeborn Greeks were able to uh, participate in the in the games, and mo the, the the Olympics really centered around originally just a simple foot race, and then they added wrestling and boxing and chariot races later on. When they entered into training, it was a rigorous 10-month schedule of training. I would say that was somewhat analogous, and Paul uses it that way, for the Christian life. The term, the verb that was used for this was agonizomai, where we get our word agony. Uh, it was very strict. They had a rigid diet. They had rigid training. They had to get up at a certain time and eat at a certain time, and they had all kinds of rules. And if you violated a rule, that was it. It was uh, they, they didn't have any, any grace period. You didn't get a second chance. If you violated a rule, you were out, and that was it. You were disqualified. And so they were all, uh, they, they all had to abide by that. The other thing is, as I pointed out earlier, they, um, they did everything, the exercise and the competing all, uh, naked. And that's the meaning of the Greek word gymnazo, where we get our word gym, gymnasium, gymnazo. And actually, that word is used in a couple of passages in First Timothy chapter four, verses seven and eight, where it's translated as exercise in one place and discipline in another. Paul says in First Timothy four seven, but reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself toward godliness. That's gumnazo. What it means is to strip naked for godliness. Not quite. What's the idea there? Why did they strip naked? To get rid of all the distractions, all the encumbrances, anything that would slow them down and keep them from winning the prize. So when Paul uses that term there in 1 Timothy 4, 7, he's saying, you know, get rid of everything in your life that distracts you from running the race well. Everything that gets in your way, everything that's going to slow you down, 
you just get rid of it. And, and that's the same thing that we find in numerous other passages uh, in, in Scripture. So they were to exercise themselves and discipline themselves for godliness. Now, and then the next point is that all believers uh, were, that should be were, I didn't get it that right, all believers were not to live, as, as believers, we're, that should be we're, all believers are, as believers, we are not to live our Christian lives aimlessly, but toward the goal of winning the prize. 1 Corinthians 9.26, Paul says, Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. In other words, we have an objective, and we should live in light of that objective, which is to serve the Lord well in this life and that we should get rid of the things that get in the way of doing that, and we shouldn't just get up and, and, and treat our Christian life as if it's just something that, well, we'll see what comes today. We should have a definite plan in place, reading our Bible, memorizing Scripture. I sound like a broken record. Uh, these are the basic disciplines, prayer, personal worship. That is all part of our Christian way of life. And then we come to the four crowns that are in the New Testament, and I'm going to wait to get to that next time because we're already out of time, and that will lead us not only from the four crowns that are mentioned in the New Testament, but also the rewards that are mentioned in the uh, Revelation 2 and 3 and the seven letters to the seven churches. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be reminded that we should live our lives with a spiritual purpose that is a controlling feature in how we live, how we conduct our lives, how we organize our time, how we uh, plan our family lives and family activities, how we conduct ourselves at the workplace. All of this is part of our spiritual life that you may be glorified, that we may serve you in whatever area we can, in whatever area our spiritual life uh, might be, and we need to lay aside the sins that so easily beset us, according to Hebrews uh, 12, uh, 1 and 2. We have to run the race before us. And Father, we pray that you would help us to understand that and to understand that it's still all based on grace and that we grow and mature in our understanding of what these mean, this means from day to day and year to year. Father, challenge us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.